0: Jenny Brandon is a composer who dedicates her time not only to composing her own music, but helping others find their own compositional voice. She often facilitates workshops and conversations around helping composers, and includes some videos outlining her own process on her website. If you watched the first annual Ears to the Earth music concert, you may recognize Jenny's name. Her piece, Starry Night for Clarinet, was performed by Stacia Fortune. I'll link that performance in the description as well as other ways of finding more about Jenny and her music. I hope you enjoy our conversation on place, advocacy, and collaboration. My name is Luke Helker, and this is Ears to the Earth. Well, to circle back to where I, I typically have been sort of starting <coughs> off with these interviews, um, the mm-hmm. first question I generally ask people is, is simply how you came to become a part of, of the Landscape Music Composers Network and how, how, mm-hmm. you, um, how well you know Nell, if at all.
1: Sure. Um, you know, she had reached out to me um, years before about this when she was sort of, just, I think, just maybe starting it or just had a couple composers in it and asked me to be involved with it. And I had not met her before that, um, but I was, you know, really interested. And I love the idea of this sort of collective of composers that were all very much focused on writing about nature and you know, telling the stories in different ways. And so it was a, it's a great, it was a great fit. Um, And I know since then, she's, you know, continued to add other people into this um, organization, which is great.
0: And so I guess, um, Mm -hmm. when, when did, did, has nature something that has, has nature always been part of your compositional process? Like, have you always just wanted to write music that more or less evokes nature in some way, shape or form?
1: I think I have. I mean, I've been writing with the theme of nature for a long time. And I think I'm drawn to it constantly because I mean, I love the natural world. You know, I love getting out and hiking, um, you know, snorkeling, taking vacations that are about, you know, being out in nature. And it was just it just was natural to want to continue to tell that story through the music. And I mean, it it lends itself to such great opportunities to tell stories. I mean, there's no, there's no shortage of ideas. And then of course, all the people that write poetry, you know, and stories about nature, we can draw from those and art as well. So yeah, I've definitely been always attracted to writing about nature because it's full of so many great stories.
0: Any particular places that are some of your favorite or that continue to um, continue to be a a well or this, you know, source of, of, you know, musical inspiration?
1: I love Joshua Tree National Park. And that's close to us out here in Southern California. It's about two, two and a half hour drive from here. And so uh, my husband and I will go there a lot to do Hiking, camping. Um, we used to do a lot of rock climbing out there as well, and so that's a place of, um, I think, a source of inspiration for me continuously. I, I'm all, it's always in my mind. I'm always thinking about Joshua Tree because it's such an inspiring place. And I'd written a piece um, a couple of years ago for solo oboe about uh, Joshua Tree and and the environment there, um, and. I think another place, just because it's at the front of my head right now, because I was just there, was uh, Death Valley National Park, which is also in California, um, a little further, about five hours away from here, towards the Nevada border, and it's just spectacular. Um, I mean, the landscape is desert still, like Joshua Tree, but so different. I mean, there are some similarities, like as you're going and you, you know, there's some Joshua trees and you see the like the cholla cactus and everything, but it's just so different and so remarkable. Um, and the, you know, the lowest point, what is it? I think the lowest point in North America, you know, you walk across the salt flats, you're like below sea level. And I mean, there's just so many stories there, just the rocks itself. I mean, I don't know if everybody else is like this, but I can't help, but like wanting to put rocks <laughs> in my pocket as I'm hiking, there's something just very, um, wonderful about them and the stories that they, they hold. So yeah, I, I think those are two places that come to mind right now, um, I actually have right in front of me in, in my office here three posters of three parks. I've got Great Sand Dunes National Park, Sequoia National Park, and Death Valley National Park. And I had said that I've got pieces written about Great Sand Dunes and about Sequoia. And I was like, oh, I have a poster with Death Valley. I haven't haven't written about that one. So I have a project planned to write about Death Valley. <laughs> so now I've got my um, my completion of my posters on my wall.
0: <laughs> oh, nice. <Yeah. laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you brought those up because... From what I've gathered, the majority of the composers in this this network, so many of you are, are inspired by um, all these different national parks and have had so many different opportunities to be, you know, uh, composers in, in residency with a lot of these and all the other different arts initiatives that these organizations um, uh, uh facilitate but but no one has actually mentioned those two places so far. A lot mm-hmm. of them are more you know the ones based in in the Arctic. I'm actually, actually that reminds mm-hmm. me, have you ever participated in Stephen Lias's Composing in the Wilderness seminar yet?
1: I have not. that's been on my radar as well. Um, it, would, it looks wonderful, but I've not had an opportunity to do that
0: addition, well, are there any I guess national parks that are sort of on your bucket list?
1: Well, I would love to get out to, um, I mean, I've done Yosemite. um, I'm trying to think what other ones. I think um, Yellowstone is on my list for sure. I haven't had an opportunity to get out there as far as another national park. And so many of these are, well, sort of, I mean, that's not quite, I mean, it is within driving distance, but I feel lucky on the West Coast because we have so many that are in, you know, driving distance that we can just hop in our cars and go. But yeah, I think Yellowstone would be. Is on my list. I have to start thinking of a piece I want to write about that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm jealous. Uh, so many of these are are still on my on my bucket list, um, uh, and I also agree with something that you were saying earlier about you know holding on to the the rocks or some sort of uh, souvenir of the landscape. Um, when you are out in some of these places, I'm wondering. I'm curious to know a little bit more about your compositional process in terms mm-hmm. of when you are out in some of these different environs, Do do certain landscapes lend themselves to certain musical mm-hmm. um, instrumentations or ensemble configurations to you, at least?
1: Mm, that's a great question. Um, I'm you know I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about the pieces that I've written um, in particular, since I'm, I'm looking at my poster here of, of Great Sand Dunes National Park. Um, often often the piece, often I might have a, it maybe goes the other way where I'll have an ensemble that I'm working with and I'm like, wow, this ensemble could really tell the story of this place. So it may vary and for example, for the Great Sand Dunes National Park piece, that was written for flute and marimba. And that was originally commissioned by um, a duo that was out um, in Co- in Colorado and Adams State University. And they took me to see, I went out there for residency um, and they took me to see Great Sand Dunes National Park. And I was like, wow, there are giant sand dunes that are really big in the middle of this area that I would have never expected to see sand dunes. And so, um, the place was so inspiring and it paired up so well with the ensemble that I was working with that it made sense for me to do that. So I don't know. I mean, maybe, I am not quite answering your question, (laughs) but like, I think that um, sometimes I just, I want to tell the story and I'll pick the project that I'm working on to tell that story through. So maybe there's not particular instruments that I'm like, Oh, this has to be this instrument. But I try to tell the story through the instrumentation that I, that is available.
0: You've unlocked a sort of a new question that I—I ha- I don't think I've—I've I've asked anyone so eloquently yet before. But so much of the experience of, of being in nature and and these parks and landscapes that we've talked about so far are—they're so personal and subjective. And I'm wondering when you were writing for and ensemble or collaborating with different, you know, musicians, uh, how, I'm, I guess I'm curious what some of those conversations are like, trying to, uh, you know, write music that is, is personal, but at the same time, you know, talking to some of these performers who may or may not have similar experiences in mm-hmm. similar environments. And I'm just curious what, what that's like.
1: Well, with folks that maybe if it's something that they haven't experienced or I say, Hey, what if we told this story about this space? Um, for example, I think about the Sequoia Trio piece that I wrote, um, for oboe, clarinet and bassoon that was written for the Vientos Trio. Um, gosh, a decade, decade plus ago now. Um, and they're, they're from California as well. And so, you know, these, these places were familiar to them. So it made sense for us to kind of do this California themed based kind of piece. Um, you know, I try to, when I'm working on a piece with performers, I think about it as a very collaborative experience. And so, you know, I don't just disappear for three months and then come back. I'm like, here's your finished piece. Good luck. Like I, I will want to sit down and work with, with the performers throughout the process, but then also um, give them a chance to give me input on it too. And so, you know, I'll find it very important to let them know what my process is to say this gesture or this theme here is, you know, the, the wind blowing through the sequoia trees. And so that they can look at that and they can say, oh, we get that. And then it appears later on and they say, oh, we understand we can, we can play it in that same way and tell that story again. So I really try to make it a very collaborative process so that everybody has input and that they also understand my thought process so that they can also bring their own interpretation to it as well.
0: Well, speaking of the process as well, I want, I noticed that on your website, you have this little video series of, of, you know, sort of going, you sort of break down at least your process for, um, you know, creating a piece sort of from initial conception to the, the, the sort of finished project. And I haven't watched all the videos yet, but i watched the first few. I think they're really great just because I love how it's, you know, a nice snippet of your own, um, your own interpretation of of it as well as a, a nice actionable step for anyone else who might you know want to try their hand at at composing themselves and i noticed the most recent video uh you have this you know this sort of uh bulletin board with all the different mm. color-coded um index cards with all the different tasks i i was geeking out about that for some Oh, good <laughs> <laughs> I, I operate somewhat similarly where I have a, a whiteboard and I kind of live and die by the whiteboard and I too tend to color code things with, you know, red for things that need to be done like today, blue for things that have to get done at least by the end of the week and green for things that I'd like to maybe get done by the end of the month and, and things like that. Um, but I'm curious, that videos. is it, it's been some time since that particular video has come out. And I'm curious for those, of us who are still curious about what your process is like, what, what are the subsequent videos? What are the subsequent steps in your, in your process?
1: So, and I'll have to go back and make some more videos now (laughs) to, (laughs) to follow through on that. So, um, you know, with the, the bulletin board, um, and sort of the organization there, it's that visual, you know, element of being able to see what's coming up. And so, um, you know, for me, moving, moving across that board, like taking that, that card across the board and moving it tells me where I'm at in the process. And so, um, you know, the joy at the end of it is that I get to throw the card away when it's all done, but, (laughs) but that's, that's sort of the process that I work through. Um, you know, and I'll, and I'll switch and change sometimes how I'm doing that. Um, you know, if it's, if it's a project I'm working on with a, an ensemble, let's say, you know, I, I start that off from beginning of like, we've, we talked about it, um, you know, until the point where I've handed off the final draft and everything in between. So that's a really important um, reminder to me to always continue to check in with performers as well, to say, oh, I'm at this point. Oh, I gave them this draft two weeks ago. I haven't heard anything. Let's follow up with them and see if they've got some feedback, you know, and, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I really use it to keep me organized and, and grounded because I, I always have more than one project going at a time and they're not always composition projects. They might be I do um, yoga as well. And so I've been doing projects where I'm working with other people on health and wellness. And so we've got projects going on with that. So I have to really keep myself focused or my days can spin out of control <laughs> and I get nothing done. <laughs> sure. Yeah.
0: I'm also curious to know, I guess to, to backtrack a little bit, your um, your sort of philosophy on place Especially, I guess, sort of pre and post COVID, hmm. um, I'm curious about how you uh, interact with your surroundings now compared to hmm. compared to uh, before.
1: Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I um, I've said other multiple times, like that the composers are uniquely um, qualified to survive a pandemic because we work by ourselves a lot anyhow. (laughs) And so, I mean, for me, part of that hasn't changed because I'm still here doing work. Um, I'm still working on projects. Um, And as far as nature, you know, it's funny. I, I feel like I may have gotten out less than I would like to for, uh, for adventures just because there seems to be so much more work to do, in the office, if that makes sense. Like I've got so many other projects that I've created, I've created a lot of new things and, um, they've taken up a lot of my time, but I don't know. Um, I think I'm interacting differently in that I'm appreciating and not that I did not before, but appreciating the nature that's around me. Like for example, outside of my, my workroom window right here, I've put in this, um, higher like um standing um, planting box that i filled with um we had broccoli in here kale i had some radishes that i grew from seeds i've got some hummingbird feeders out here and i can look out here and so i've kind of got a piece of that nature directly next to me while i'm working so even if i'm inside i can still take in that nature like it was really important for me to have that so that's a little different because before it was like we were free to go do whatever we wanted to and Especially in California, we're a little more locked down. So I have nature sort of there always that I can appreciate it.
0: Your music doesn't necessarily strike me as being um, confrontational in a certain way, or at least, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of the composers that I've talked to, their music is more evoking uh, feelings of being immersed in particular environments. Um, but but there are others who sort of want to use their um, music to perhaps draw attention to some of the more dramatic shifts taking place in our in our climate. And I'm wondering, for you, what role music has uh, as a as a tool for advocacy, especially mm-hmm. as, you know the music that that you do as um, environmentally uh, focused music.
1: Sure. I think for me, the music that I'm writing um, wants to serve as a reminder to people about these places and the importance of them. And I really feel strongly about telling the stories of these places because of the wonder there, the unique environments, the, you know, the climates, you know, desert versus mountains, versus trees, versus rocks. And to try to tell the story of those places that other people can look at it and listen to it, like like they were looking at a picture or they were reading about it in a book, and but telling it through this other medium of music, to remind people that these are beautiful, wonderful places, and then from that to want to keep them as wonderful places that we can all enjoy and we can all take care of. So I think that's I think that's how I approach. Um, writing these works when I'm talking about nature is that I want to be a storyteller and tell about the wonderfulness of these places so that we can continue to work, that we can all appreciate them.
0: Are there stories out there for you that you are saving for the right moment, or are there stories that you still want to tell but haven't quite found the right source of funding or the right ensemble to to realize it.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, holding those those special projects (laughs) for just the right time. Um, You know, just as a a little bit of a a preview, I'm working with Heartland Marimba Quartet, um, which is a wonderful ensemble. And you may actually know um, Matthew Coley is the director of that organization. And I've been working with him. We actually did a, a fall composition festival and writing for the marimba. We're getting ready to launch an announcement about our winter and spring festival and writing for the all the keyboard percussion instruments. And um, but they they had um, originally gotten a grant, uh, a partial grant through New Music USA to commission um, new folks to write them new music, and. Like i said with the posters on my wall for a long time, I'd looked at the Death Valley National Park poster, and I'm like, I got it's going to be someone, someone I'm going to have to tell that story with. And it turns out that it's the Hartland Marimba Quartet, so I'm going to be work, starting to work on a piece for them about that, and using all of the wonderful material that I just got while I was out there um, camping and, and hiking a couple weeks ago um, as as research for this project. So yeah, so I do I do hold on to. To to pieces or ideas until I I get the right group to come along to share it with.
0: Mm, that's very exciting. I I don't know Matthew personally. I'm very aware of of what he's done uh, with the with the quartet. Uh, one of my colleagues here at the University of Kansas um, participated in the summer and you know video series that they were that they were doing. Um, but yeah, that sounds great. I'm I'm very looking forward to to when that'll come out yeah um you you also studied composition at the university of texas austin and the university of southern california and just out of curiosity i my knowledge of you know these the composition faculty in these places is is uh Non-existent, um, and I'm just curious who who was uh, teaching at those places.
1: Sure. When I was there, the, the folks that I studied with at UT Austin, um, I studied with Dan Welcher and Kevin Putz at UT Austin while I was there. And then when I came out here to USC, I studied with Rick Lazimon and then Morton Laridson as well.
0: What was it like studying with Kevin Putz? Because he's someone who came across um we talked about him in our class but we talked about him in the context of um i guess you know he teaches at peabody now mm-hmm. um, But what was it like to study under him
1: it was great kevin kevin is a, a fun talented smart composer and person and full of energy like full of energy full of knowledge um, i always felt like i got so much out of those lessons with him because you know, he was always super quick to be like, go listen to this, you know, go, go take a look at this score. And which is very inspiring. Like I felt very inspired. And I mean, of course his music is, is wonderful. And, and so, you know, it was such a, um, a wonderful opportunity to get to really, um, sort of get to, you know, get into his brain <laughs> through, through the, through the lessons and really learn some, some great things, you know, just about writing and just about, I think, creativity, you know, and the way he approaches writing pieces, um, you know, and just his process of going, you know, going into a piece, you know, I feel like I hopefully, you know, absorb some of that and and bring that into to what I do as well.
0: Yeah. He, to, to me at least, he's one of those composers where he's not maybe not necessarily like nature inspired in the way that some of the, you know, landscape composers are, but his music always is transporting me to like a sort of very specific, you know, time and place. I'm thinking of pieces like, um, uh, night, the, uh, the piano concerto Mm -hmm. or, um, and legions will rise. Mm Mm-hmm yeah he creates
1: yeah he creates a I mean absolutely and that's something I definitely took took from him is like creating just creating a space like you create a space and whatever that space is like to just allow your performers your audience you know your listeners to just be in that space and so yeah his music definitely is trans transporting (laughs) yeah
0: are you are you still self-publishing everything
1: I am, um, for the most part, self-publishing all of my own works now. Um, You know, when I, I say, you know, when I, when I first got started, not necessarily, but like, you know, over a period of time, I was seeking out other publishers to publish my music and that's wonderful. And I have no problems with that. And the folks that have my music, I'm glad for. Um, I just decided that going the self-publishing route for myself was the right thing because, I really I mean I think it has to do with my collaboration and connection that I like to do with performers and I really like to be able to be, you know, hands on, you know, if people buy my music and later on I can reach out to them and say contact me with questions, let's get in touch, you know, I'd love to support you while you're, you know, rehearsing and programming this piece and I really try to actively engage in promoting other people's performances of my music as well. So for me the self-publishing is it's fun in that because I can sort of have my hands in everything.
0: In addition to some of the pieces like the Sequoia Tree that you've 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 brought up before, I'm wondering if there are other pieces in your repertoire that you think sort of best exemplify not only you know you as a composer but you know some of the more um eco-centric music.
1: Mm. Um, I'll, I'll talk about a recent piece and a recent um, album that just came out. Uh, is my my work Wood Song for solo oboe. And that piece was commissioned by Linda Beth Binkley, who I got to know over the last couple of years. She's an oboist um, at Central Michigan University. And I got to know over the last couple of years, I met her at a Double Read Society conference. She played a piece of mine and we got connected and we became friends. And she wanted to um, put together an album of my music, of music for oboe. And so part of that project was for me to write a brand new piece for her. And we knew we wanted it to be um, something, you know, that would showcase her. And of course, the theme that I went to was nature <laughs> to tell the story. And I, and I found a poem by Sarah Teasdale that talks about wood thrush. And I thought, oh, wood thrush, that's fascinating. And so I started, you know, kind of digging in and doing research on the wood thrush and the wood thrush's song. And I went to the Audubon website and listened to songs of the wood thrush and, you know, actually did some transcriptions of some bird calls that they do and wrote this piece for her to record on her her new cd called from earth and sky music of jenny brandon and that's on the blue griffin recording label and so yeah so that's a that's a new piece i feel like and it's a good representation of you know me as a composer but me as like also especially writing for um uh, solo instruments i really think I love writing for solo instruments because you can tell so many great stories by using the colors and the ranges and registers of the instrument.
0: Yeah. Uh, and you also incorporate a lot of text in mm. some of your, in some of your pieces, whether for inspiration or if it's like a vocal piece where it's, it's actually being implemented. And I'm, I'd like to know a little bit more about how you go about choosing mm. the specific text to um, you know, to help tell that story aside from just, you know, the music itself.
1: Sure. Yeah. I, you know, I think I'm always drawn to text because I'm a vocalist as well. And so, you know, have always been singing and, and when I was younger, I was writing my own uh, poetry and lyrics. I used to do a lot of singer songwriter performances. And so I was, I'm always have been drawn to text. And so when I'm choosing text, I mean, I'm, I spend hours researching, you know, digging, digging, digging for the right text. And especially when I start to think about a story and some, sometimes, you know, it's it's like chicken or the egg, you know, sometimes I have a story I want to tell. So I go looking for text that fits that poetry, you know, phrases, whatnot. And then sometimes there's a poem that someone says, you know, what if we use this as inspiration? And then that guides me in how I write the piece. And so yeah, I do. I use a lot of text um, throughout pieces, even if I'm not setting it. I find that the text is the, story, is the story that I'm telling. And as a storyteller, sometimes the words and the music can really enhance um, the, whole, the whole thing, the whole experience.
0: And you have this, this opera, this... Mm. Uh, you're going to have to help me pronounce it because I am... I'm very bad at that. Sure, but,
1: um, no, it's a uh, three three Padereckis. Okay, <laughs> good a good Polish name.
0: <laughs> can you uh, can you talk a little bit about this? Because I I've took a glimpse of it, but I want to know a little bit more about it. It seems fascinating this this idea of like the three, you know, three um, different representations of of this uh, this person.
1: Mm -hmm. So yeah, so Paderewski um, was a Polish um, um, composer, uh, world famous pianist, um, statesman, he was Prime Minister of Poland at one point, um, was part of the Versailles Treaty, you know, um, ending war. So he was a truly incredible um, individual. And this project, just to give a quick background, this project came about through a competition that was being sponsored by the Adam Mickiewicz Institute of Poland, as well as um, the Ministry of Poland, and as part of um, the 100-year celebration of Polish independence. And so, it ended up being this really big project. This was a this was a three-year project where um, my my friend and writing partner Oliver Mayer, who's a, um, a professor of um, dramatic. Um, Uh, writing at um, USC, of theater, dramatic theater. And he uh, entered this competition, and he and I had done some projects before, and he entered it, and he was one of the finalists for it. He was like, hey, you want to, you want to write some music for this? I was like, sure, why not? (laughs) So that set us off on this journey to tell the story of Paderewski, who, you know, was just, I mean, is revered in Poland as like, you know, the savior of Poland, basically. Um, You know, he traveled the world as a pianist and. The other interesting thing about him, though, he ended up in California. There's a California connection here because in Paso Robles, which is just up the road from me here, um, which is Central Coast, uh, big wine country area, Paderewski actually owned his own vineyards. And there are Zinfandel grapes up there. Epic, Epic Winery has taken over that land. And he planted some of the, I believe, some of the first Zinfandel grapes in, in the region. And so he has this huge personality. So we've got the three Paderewski's because he's so big. You've got the younger Paderewski. That was the, you know, performer, you know, lover, you know, just energetic. There was the middle Paderewski who was the statesman and was fighting for his country. And then there was the older Paderewski who was the one who was just like, I- I'm good. I'm done. I'm going to go drink some wine in California and, you know, I'm I'm good. And so, so we tell this story about these three sort of versions of Paderewski um, interwoven with the... Um, visits of his wife, um, Antonina, who died in childbirth. This is a very tragic kind of story. Um, And, but she comes in as sort of the muse throughout this. Um, And so, yeah, we tell this story of him and sort of the three Padereckis getting along and fighting with each other a bit. And we've got a chorus in there that ends up being, you know, his conscience, his, you know, the people around him, the people cheering him on, the people, you know, um, you know, mourning when he dies. And so we ended up with, um, after the three iterations, we had a 15 minute version and a 45 minute and then a 60 minute version. Um, we ended up with the 60 minute version that last year we did, um, in, at Cal in California at university of Southern California. And then we took some of our cast to Poland and we did it at a Paderewski festival in Poznan, Poland. And then we took the original LA cast to, uh, the Kennedy Center and did a performance of it at the Terrace Theater. So it had a lot of legs. Very, very exciting project <laughs> about somebody that I didn't know that much about until I started the project and then really, really loved it, really loved telling his story.
0: Yeah, it's someone who is not, no, I'm not terribly familiar with, but the, the story sounds certainly compelling and certainly, you know, dramatic enough for for the context of an, of an, of an opera. Have you ever, have you tried doing any other, um, Opera productions before, or since,
1: um, not not before. This is my first large large production, and we were, you know, very much, um, you know, supported by, you know, Poland and Adam Mickiewicz Institute, which is great. Um, right now, Oliver Mayer and I, who I worked on with Three Paderewskis and other projects, we are in the middle of starting to work on a new opera right now, and we're just in that beginning process of libretto, getting some stuff written, starting to look for development partners. So we're hoping to to do something big again <laughs> when the world comes back from the pandemic and we can all get on stage together.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, you You seem to do so much besides just being a composer, you're you're a conductor as well, and you seem to at least based on your your website, you seem so open and willing to you know share some of this knowledge and expertise with with other um, other students and ponte- potential composers and and I like how you um, you you believe in the quote unquote like the hyphenate uh, mm. <laughs> the hyphenate musician and I would just like to pick your brain a little bit more on like the your sort of philosophy and. Because I think it's, I mean, even before COVID and realizing that we all have to understand how technology works and all these other different skills, I'm I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about, um, you know, your your sort of hyphenate philosophy.
1: Sure, um, you know the 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 idea of the hyphenate the hyphenate musician, especially in these days, is that we aren't we aren't all just one thing. And, you know, whether that's, you know, products of the society we live in, you know, the access we have to Internet, the access we have to just all sorts of information that, you know, I I feel like, you know, once upon a time, you know, as a musician, you're like, well, this is what you do and you do it. And if you can't do this, well, then get out and, you know, go do something else. But I don't think that that should be the case anymore. I think that our experiences influence who we are in in the world that we're in and so we can be you know a musician but we can also love other things and that can be part of who we are this idea of separating that I don't think is I don't think it's healthy I think it's good for us to embrace who we are and bring that into what we do and so for me you know it was gosh I think I've been teaching yoga now for eight eight years I got Fascinated, maybe obsessed is the right word <laughs> with doing yoga, and then getting into teaching, and then realizing that I love teaching yoga, and that I love supporting people in their practice, and then their health, and just allowing that to to spin out into something more than just well, I do yoga over here, and I do music over here. Like I can be a composer who also can support musicians through yoga or through wellness. And you know, for example, I'm I'm going to be teaching. Um, uh, at um, there's a festival called the Meg Quigley, um, Meg Quigley Vival- Vivaldi Bassoon Symposium, and it's an online this year. But I've been involved with them because they've played my music before, um, bassoon music. But I've also been involved in teaching yoga, and so I'm I'm sort of like the yoga composer that shows up and like you play some of my music, and then you come take a yoga class with me, you know. And so I think that that's actually really healthy for us to have these different things. And I try to encourage folks that you know when we when I have talks when I do talks with with Um, composers to say, you know, don't hide that away. Like if you're a bassoonist baker, be a bassoonist baker. Like, you know, I don't know, have a, have a concert of bassoon and then, you know, showcase your pastries afterwards. (laughs) You know, something like that. So I think it's important. I think it, I think it feeds who we are. And if we try to cut one off because we're told well, we can't have both. Yeah. Sometimes we have to make decisions about where we're going to put our focus, but if something truly makes us happy and we truly love it, we should let that be part of what we do.
0: I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a, a very refreshing uh, outlook, especially today. And I think we certainly need more more of that perspective to be certainly more normalized these days. And you mentioned like the baking and it reminds me of a, a dear friend of mine out here. She's a, a bass clarinet player, but... Mm-hmm. She also is a phenomenal baker, um, always enjoy getting to to help uh, beta test some of her, some of her uh, desserts.
1: Totally. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so in addition, I guess, to, to sort of wrap some of this stuff up, in addition to, you know, all the sort of nature inspired music uh, that you have, in addition to that, what are some of the other big sources of inspiration. What else besides nature is, is, uh, is important to you?
1: I mean, I think, I think, you know, just like what we were talking about in the line of, of just taking care of ourselves and, and wellness and sort of the whole, just to go yoga for a second, (laughs) the whole like mind, body, spirit idea. Um, That's really important. And I, and I think I think that influences what I'm writing and how I'm writing more than maybe I'm always aware of and bringing it in. I mean, I haven't actually written like a specific like yoga piece yet or something like that, but, but I think I'm saving that. That's going to be for a special group. <laughs> I got to wait for the right ensemble for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think I'm just, um, you know, the, the nature, the natural world is such a huge influence on me. And I, I think then the yoga became the next thing. Like, I definitely have a love for, I mean, I think, I think a lot of times too, as musicians and especially, I mean, you as well, I mean, doing like a podcast like this, like you have this drive to do something that's fascinating to you and you like to learn and talk to other people. And I feel the same way. Like I like to, I like to learn and talk with other people. And, and I really love, um, you know, just to, to dig into researching whatever it happens to be, maybe it's influenced by peace, but then I feel like I learned from that and it's something that goes into my own personal um, toolbox of knowledge. And so, yeah, I don't know. Researching is fun. Geeking out over stuff is fun. <laughs> yeah. And um, um, I won't say I'm as much of a baker. I leave that up to my husband to make <laughs> me a lot of breads and cakes, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll taste test them too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Jay, thank you so much. It it really has been a real treat. You you're absolutely right. I this is one of the main reasons why I do this is to to learn. I'm sort of endlessly fascinated by hearing about people's uh, you know, creative approaches and, and their their musical inspirations and aspirations and, and so on. But thank you.
1: Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. It's great to get to know you too. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely be uh, in touch certainly closer to when the, the episode comes out.